Thank you. If you would turn in your scripture as I give the reading for the day, First uh, John five ten through twelve. I might have misspoken and said ten through thirteen, but it's ten through twelve. First John five ten through twelve. The one who believes in the Son of God has this witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the witness which God has borne witness about his Son. And the witness is this, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in the Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have that life. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, John. Um, so this morning, uh, we actually read from the, the LSB, the Legacy Standard, um, and that was for a, a specific reason. Um, if in, in, Unless you have an NASB in your hand, it probably says life instead of the life, and so we'll talk about that in these verses, um, specifically 11, 12. Um, if, you, if you ever, you know, you have five minutes to read the Scripture read the scripture. If you've got a longer time and you're interested, read your translation notes in the front of the Bible. Um, It talks about what the aims or the goals of the translators are. Sometimes it's a word-for-word translation. Sometimes it's thought by thought. And sometimes um, it it tries to find a balance between the two and still strike a bit of a readability or a poetic kind of an approach. And so it's good to um, look across several different translations, and uh, we'll talk about that a little bit this morning. But as First John is is wrapping up, as we've we've studied for the the first four chapters, and and now on the fifth and final, there's several different lines of thought that John has been pulling through in his writing. At least three. Um, it, it it can feel like a bit of a sporadic book. John's covering a lot of ground. He's talking through a lot of things, but. Some of the things that he refers to are, one, the testimony of a transformed person, the testimony of a transformed person. Two, the love of God as a matter of his character and as a matter of his nature. And three, the trustworthiness of God, that God is trustworthy. He's not like a man that would lie. He's truthful. He always tells the truth. And we talked about that even just this morning in uh, an 8.30 meeting. We talked about there's this um, concept that sometimes is explicitly stated, other times is kind of just taught without meaning it, and it's it's something called replacement theology, and that is that the church becomes Israel and all the promises to Israel are given to the church, and that's not true because God is trustworthy. He's not like a man. And in our three verses this morning, John is looking specifically at the trustworthiness of God And the trustworthiness of God then becomes a lens to see the transformed life. So because God is trustworthy, the life of a person who has God, who has Christ as Lord and Savior, who's rejoined to God, who has the Spirit of God in them, the life looks different. And that's what John talks about as a believer. Maybe you hear people talk about being a believer. What John depicts as being a believer consistent with the scriptures, is relatively easy, really. Um, it's not a burden. If you attend um, the Bible study at the, at the Howard home that Stephen leads every other Wednesday, 
every other Thursday, with a full meal cooked, by the way, each week. I think I heard tomahawk steaks are on the menu for the next Thursday study, so check that out. Steve, put your hand up real quick. Steve will be cooking tomahawks, so go over to that. They studied from the book of James this week, and a, thim- a, thimler, <laughs> a similar concept is in the book of James. So if you, if, if you flip there, go ahead. If, if not, uh, it, it'll be on the screens back here. If you, if you flip to everything, I'm going to warn you, your fingers will be sprained by the end of the day. Um, but James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, James is talking about what does it look like to be a believer? What, what happens when you become a believing Christian? Because the concept of believer is thrown around a lot. Um, it's, it's more than just a head knowledge, knowing that God is real. Satan knows God is real, and the promises to believers are not extended to him. And so the scriptures help us understand what does it mean. Verses 14 through 26 read like this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, Without giving them the things of need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, if you have faith and I have works, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown You foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. And so James is talking about the transformed believer. Like John will lay out today, we see that John pits the trustworthiness of God on the transformed believer's life. He links them. He makes them both important to the other. Jesus carries this same message. What God says of Jesus, the Messiah, is that he is the only way that we can be redeemed to God. There's no other path, not works. And so James, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Isaiah, Abraham are all consistent with that exact message. We're in one of three categories. One, aligned with the gospel and found in Christ. Aligned with the gospel found in Christ. Number two, lying to ourselves about being in Christ and bearing no fruit in our lives. Or three, calling God a liar and denying the truth. This is what John will point at. 
Those are the only three places we can be. Aligned with the gospel and found in Christ. Lying to ourselves about being in Christ and our lives bearing no fruit. And three, calling God a liar and denying the truth. So we'll look first at verse 10. 1 John 5, 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, whoever does not believe God made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. So the very truthfulness of God is tied up in who Christ is as Savior and Lord. And if someone is not found in Christ, redeemed to God, they call God a liar. They effectively say what God says about being joined to himself by his gospel through his son isn't true. I don't believe it. And so they're saying then that God is a liar. And so of the three concepts we mentioned that John is, is pulling through this book, we're looking today at the testimony of a transformed person and the trustworthiness of God. In, in, the, in the book of 1 John, there are eight times that he mentions this idea of a testimony, having a testimony. Um, our testimony as a believer, as a biblical scriptural believer, is to the truth of the gospel in Christ. And so denying that gospel, having no testimony in Christ, declares that you believe what scriptures, what God has said to be so, isn't true. You have said that is not true, and thereby I have no testimony. And so you call God a liar because he declares that to be true. This is John's point. In 1 John 1.10, he said, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. John is consistent with this message. He says again in chapter 2 and verse 22, Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Now, he mentions this category of people who claim to have fellowship, not denying God's truth, but are liars. 1 John 1.6 If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, this is important. Scripture all over the word encourages us to consider ourselves before a holy God. It, something about this life is so distracting. It feels like everything is about this life. You wake up and you think about the problems of the day. You think about what you need to get done this day, this week, this month, this year. And we forget that God is holy, completely outside of everything we even understand. Perfect in his character, perfect in his nature. Perfect in the way that he loves without requirement. Perfect in upholding his own moral standard. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, 
Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so the, the, the gravity and the importance of being known by Christ is why we are encouraged over and over again in Scripture to consider ourselves and our faith. 2 Corinthians 13.5. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name a few if you want to write some of these down, think about them, pray over them, read them. 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Also, Luke chapter 13, verse 27. These are all passages from Scripture encouraging you to consider the fruit of your life, encouraging you to understand whether you're in the faith. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you came from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Romans 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. I say all this because the Scripture says all this from front to back. Our constant encouragement is to make sure that the testimony we bear is of God, is from Christ. It's important. In Isaiah 29 and 13, And the Lord said, because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. This is talking about people perhaps who, who claim to follow after God, but really aren't. They're far from him. Maybe, they lying, maybe they're lying to themselves. Maybe they're claiming faith for a cultural reason. Maybe they are appeasing a grandmother or a grandfather or a mom or a dad or a brother or a sister or a cousin or an uncle. Ecclesiastes 5.1 Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. From the book of Psalms, verses 23, 1 through 6, we read, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still water. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever." The chaos of life can overtake these kinds of truths if we don't 
place ourselves before God and his word, if we're not reading, if we're not considering him, we can get so caught up in the, the craziness of our lives that we forget a holy, righteous God. Someone in verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the truth of being a person. It's finite, it's brief, it's fleeting, like a vapor. And so what's being encouraged in all of these verses and so many more is that to claim Christ as our Savior and our Lord, to claim to be joined to God, and then to wink at sin with our manner of living is not living before a holy God in the testimony of Christ. The works aren't there. To, to understand that God is holy, that this life is temporary, and that the eternal reality of God is so much more valuable than anything else in this life where moth and rust destroy is not to actually be connected to God. To not care for God and His holiness is to, to fit that second category of someone perhaps who claims to have a testimony, but the fruit does not prove it. This is why the scriptures constantly encourage those of us who say we have a testimony to consider ourselves before him. Look at the fruits of your life. Salt, water, and fresh don't come from the same well. And so what does the fruit of our lives look like? This is what John would encourage. He's in the wilderness, you grow to vipers, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Because we're never so far from God that we cannot repent. Perhaps if I look at the fruit of my life and say, it's not there. I have no real testimony. I have no regard for the holiness of God. I have no regard for sin. Salvation is a step to Christ where he then becomes Savior and Lord. We're supposed to consider ourselves before a holy and righteous God. 1 John chapter 5, verses 10 and 12. Or no, let's just let's read 10 again. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. This is John's point. And so John will then make it plain, what does it mean to believe in the Son of God and have the testimony inside ourselves? Verse 11, And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and that this life is in His Son. Um, John moves from verse 10, saying things like, whoever has, whoever does not, and he who has believed now to verse 11, saying that God gave us. He's shifting towards those people who have this testimony to give them some clarity around, well, what, what is the testimony that we claim? What does it mean to have this testimony in us that God has given us? Romans eight sixteen helps shine light on that as well says that the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children 
of God. We bear the resemblance of God. We, we demonstrate that there's a connection between us and God. We bear fruits worthy of the repentance that we have offered up. We, we become more and more like Christ progressively over time. As our minds become renewed, our behaviors start to align and look differently. It's not to say that our behaviors bring us any merit. It's just that our behaviors become aligned to the holiness of God. Perfectly? No. Differently? Yes. We then are children of God who are energized by the Spirit of God as we come to know the Son of God. With the Spirit of God that lives within us, we have conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so verse 12 encourages us, 1 John 5, whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, this is what we read differently this morning because this can read... You can read into this or not read into this a specificness around life because whoever has the Son has life. If you, if you look around, the people that are to your right and to your left, they have life in them right now. And so what John is not saying is that just to simply be, be alive right now means that you have the Spirit of God. He's been saying something different the entire time. If you go all the way back, I say all the way, you go to, to verse 9, it talks about Christ being of, of the blood and of the water. It talks about, in verse 10, us having a testimony and needing to bear that testimony. It talks in verse 11 about how we know the truth is in us and that we have eternal life. And now in verse 12, whoever has the Son has the life. If in your hand you have an NASB, the NASB will say the life. There And that the is important. It's the, the definite article. The life. It's a, it's a different kind of life. It's not the life that we have because we, we woke up and our heart was still beating and we were still breathing. It's the kind of life that we have because the Spirit of God is in us, testifying along with our spirit that we are rejoined to God in Christ. We have that life in us. The testimony of the believer who has eternal life secured and who is found in the Son is the litmus test. That testimony itself, the testimony of the Spirit in us, aligned to us, fruits of our lives, is how we know that we are found in Christ. That's what John is encouraging them. This is why John encourages them to abide. All throughout the book of 1 John, he talks about abiding, constantly being with um, praying, be, being in prayer, spending time in the Word, being aligned to caring about the things of God more than the things of this life. But we talked just this morning about we tend to look at things as like we're time-bound people, meaning we're stuck in time. We're, we're here. We're, we're victims of time. There's nothing we can do about it, right? Our bodies get older. We start off and we're young and life is frustrating because everybody tells us what to do. Right? Well, first it starts off like, you're a baby and everybody likes you. And then you become a toddler and people put up with you. And then you become like a young kid and you're kind of okay. But then you become a teenager. There's no more love for you. 
right? Then you hit young adulthood. You're never old enough until you hit your 40s, and somehow you move past that, and you just became too old. It's a hateful life and a terrible cycle. That is life in a fallen world that all groans with creation. The testimony in us is that the Spirit of God comes in us and quickens us and makes us alive in a different way in the world. And so we start to then, we experience this life a little bit differently. It's, it's more rich. We're appreciative. Maybe you've been, maybe you are, maybe you know somebody for whom life is just constantly a drag. They're always tired. So tired. You know, people, there's like people that work really hard for a living outside of here, and they would like love to be as tired as you are from all your emails. Paul, imprisoned and beaten, desperate to have someone bring him the scrolls, the word, knows the great, wonderful richness of God. And, and we would do well to consider that. This life gives us so much. Um, we're so rich, I mean, just in the things that we have. And some of it is just from the goodness of God. He gives us family. He gives us one another. He gives us our church home to celebrate with and enjoy being together, to fellowship in his word. We have life and we have breath. Most of us have never struggled for a meal. God gives us food and it's good. You know, I mean, food is wonderful. It's a great gift. What a, what a merciful God to give us this flavorful abundance of things to eat. Fr- trees that grow food on them. Roots of plants that are potatoes and sweet potatoes and, and beets and, and, and peanuts and all the wonderful things, all the variety. God didn't have to do that. He gave us this richness of life. Everything that's around us, the scriptures encourage us that it's plain to see that there's a God. Look at all of the creative things that go on in the world around us. You know, um, I'm constantly amazed that there's this fish called the anglerfish. I haven't talked about this in a few years. The anglerfish is there to mock the atheist. Do you know what? The, the anglerfish has a light on a cord that hangs in front of its face so it can see where it's going. That is a heck of an adaptation. It's like you almost have to like think about it and say, you know... It's too dark down here on the bottom of the ocean. It would be better to see. So if I could grow a light out of the front of my face, I could see everything I needed to. This is a creative God providing for his creation and making it all work. If it was up to us, everything would be Florida and there would be no seasons and everything would just like burn and be on fire constantly. Like, I, you know, you, you, you go to Florida, you sit by the pool in, in June or August, you're almost close to death by about noon. And so God gives us seasonality. Some of us, right? The earth is at this perfect axis, the perfect distance from the sun. There's areas we could go to retreat, right? We, we, we can go to Arizona if, if our bodies are cold because it's always really hot there. And then crops grow in their season and it rains. And God does that by his mercy. The scriptures say that that's a common grace. It rains on the, on the just and the unjust. God is really, really good to us in so many ways. Even when we're found in our unbelief, he still loves us while we were yet sinners. And then he calls us, woos us by his grace and his mercy to receive the free gift of salvation by simply seeing that we're far from him. What grace. 
He places no requirement of work. It's not a wage. It's a free gift. And John, in his presentation of all of this, places Jesus as the very center of this plan of God. And and that's important because Jesus was was the, the Alpha and the Omega. He's the plan from the beginning. It's not as though God put Adam and Eve in the garden and said, okay, guys, follow the rules. And then they failed to do that. And he said, well, doggone it. Now I'm going to have to do something else. Let me spend a couple days and kind of spin out a plan. And he came up with Jesus. This was always the plan from the beginning. And so as John talks about the testimony being in Christ, it's the centrality of their very salvation. 1 John 1-2 says, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was from the Father and was made manifest to us. The manifest life, the life that was made clear to us, was Jesus, the co-eternal from the beginning. Jesus himself, the God-man, who bore all the fullness of God's character. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death and into life because... We love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Pause on that for a moment. Not loving, not loving the brethren specifically is abiding, staying close to. Remember, we're supposed to abide in Christ. We're supposed to abide for our relationship. Abiding as a Christian looks like waking up and and praying and spending time in the word, thinking on the wonderful things of God and his nature. Um, Not loving the brethren is abiding, staying close to, staying aligned to, being defined by death. 1 John 4.9 In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In Jesus, the very love of God was made manifest Manifest was made so that we could see it, the love of God. Jesus is central to everything. So, so why? Why is, why is Jesus so central to everything that John is arguing for about having a testimony that demonstrates our salvation and our position before God? Because in Christ, Colossians 1.9 will say, in Christ, the fullness of God exists bodily. That's why Jesus would say, if you've already seen, if you've seen me, you have already seen the Father. If you want to see, well, how would how would the character and the nature of God react to a fallen, broken world? Watch Christ. Watch him interact with the world around him. Watch him send out the disciples in twos and instruct them how you react to people, whether they won't receive your, your testimony or to be welcomed into homes. Jesus is central to everything because he is the fullness of God and he is the promised Messiah. We're going to look quickly at Acts chapter 4. I would encourage you to turn there. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. And we're going to see here as Peter specifically is in this situation and he's going to respond to some line of questioning that comes his way. Acts chapter 4, 
verses 1 through 9. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were the teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, which the Sadducees did not align to. Verse 3, And they arrested him, and they put him in custody until the next day, before it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came out to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Ananias, the high priest, and Scipius, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, now, what he is about to say will partly come from the Psalms, quoting from Psalm 118. We'll look at verses 20 through 24. He's going to reach to the Scripture for his answer. By what power? As he's filled with the Holy Spirit, his answer will come from Scripture. And here's the context of it. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is why he's reaching back to the Scriptures to show continuity with God's purposes, pulling this concept of the cornerstone, which they would be very familiar with. And so for us, when we look on Christ, we see the fullness of God. We see perfect character, perfect nature. We see Christ reacting in ways that's totally different from us. We see Christ be goodness and patience, kindness. We see Christ be gentle. We see Christ be full of self-control. We see Christ not keep record of wrong. We see Christ do that really well. We just, we just see um, Jesus treated terribly, but living his life in full perfection, ready to die on the cross for the very sins of the people who are torturing him, who are plotting against him. We see him at the, we see him um, with the very person who's going to turn him over, Judas washing feet, Jesus is the perfect picture of the character of God. That convicts us of our sin. If, if, I, if I don't have a sandwich today by about 1.30 p.m., I will be rude towards people. I will get irate. Maybe that's not your thing. Maybe food doesn't throw you off. But something in your life makes it very easy to see that you are not the fullness of the nature of God. And then looking on Christ, who was and who lived in always like us, who was tempted but never sin. 
It convicts us, and it makes us then turn to the gospel, which is that in Christ we can be forgiven of our sins, past, present, and future, simply by repenting and trusting Jesus to be our Lord and our Savior. And then the fruit that flows out of our transformed life is one that starts to look increasingly like Jesus, who bears the very image of God in him. We become looking more and more like him over time. And then, as we're seeing from John, as we have that testimony of the Spirit that aligns to our spirit, we have this specific new life in us that exists after this life. We're held by the Spirit, we're transformed, and we're renewed. Look at Romans 12. To leave this place is the the highest mercy. The highest mercy is death. That's why Paul would proclaim that death, where is your sting? It has no sting for the believer. It has no sting for the person for whom the Spirit is met with the Spirit of God, who for whom Jesus sacrifice was given for your personal sins, by, who is connected to God in Christ. There's no sting in that death. And so then we become justified all in a moment. We become sanctified over our lifetime. And then on death, we who are in Christ have a promised eternal unification with God in Christ. Romans 5.16 And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift, following many trespasses, brought justification. This is talking about that life of Christ, the the perfect Adam, the, the perfect representation of all humanity lived in all ways like us, just without sin. Romans 5.18, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. We become justified. We become legally declared innocent. We become made just as if you never sinned because of the perfect life and work of Christ. This is why John makes Christ so prominent in 1 John. Romans 4 verses 4 through 5. Now, to the one who works his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That's what we celebrated today in in the baptisms, which is the symbol of the unification with God in Christ, moving from death to being renewed, to being washed clean, to living as a newly birthed person, a living soul in a dying world. This is why John encourages us over and over and over to examine our testimony, to find whether we're in Christ, and to look to our own works, to look to our own outputs, to look to our own feelings about the world and the people around us, to know if we pass the test. And maybe you don't like the concept of looking to your works, of looking to your life to know whether you pass the test. 
I would encourage you to read 2 Corinthians 13.5 and settle that. 2 Corinthians 13.5. And so John's focus for us this morning has been focused on two of the three points in this book. Number one, the testimony of a transformed person. And number two, the trustworthiness of God. If we know that the Word, the Bible, Scriptures that we read are the living Word of God, and we know that God is not like a man that He cannot lie, and we know that the Scriptures present the gospel truth in Jesus as the promised Messiah, the finished work once and for all, then we know the only thing left for us to do is trust God in Christ, to repent, to turn to Him, to follow after Him for all the rest of our days and make Him be our treasure. There's nothing in this life that could be higher treasure than God in Christ. And then, knowing our position before a holy God in Christ is one of three things. Number one, aligned with the gospel and found in Christ. Number two, lying to ourselves about being in Christ and bearing no fruit. Or number three, calling God a liar and denying the truth. These are the fruits of our life that we're encouraged all over Scripture to look for. This is the testimony that John encourages us towards because he cares pastorally for these people to whom he is writing, to whom he is talking to. And so we would, we would do well in the same, to consider the fruits and the outputs and the motivations of our own hearts, our own thoughts about God. Are they, are they um, aligned to seeing the holiness of God? Does that encourage us towards salvation? Does that encourage those of us who already believe to, to chase after holiness, to desire to, to find areas in, a, in our life perhaps where maybe sin exists and to, to give that over to God, to not desire to live in that way, to not desire to abide in death, to not desire to fellowship with, with sinful behaviors, but to be aligned to God in Christ so that we can earn him? No. So that we can celebrate and enjoy him and abide in him? Absolutely that. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have given us your word so that we can know you, God, so that we can find you, so that we can understand your wonderful character and your mercy and your love for us. God, I thank you that that you have not held back but allowed us to see that our character is out of alignment with your perfect holy character, God, that you have allowed us over the course of time to look upon your word and see that it's true. And God, for those of us who know you by your son, Jesus, who whose testimony aligns to the spirit's testimony inside them, whose lives bear fruit worthy of repentance, God, we thank you for that gift. Perhaps we need to be reinvigorated to exercise that further. We thank you for that and we ask you for that. God, if there's anyone here this morning who has heard your word for the first time and and it's really resonated, they really felt like they understand the gospel's message, which is a call to repentance and a life pursuing holiness. God, I pray that you would reach them even right now and bring them to a place of repentance and salvation. God, we thank you that you allow us to approach you through your son, Jesus. We thank you for your spirit who aligns to our spirit and transforms us. And God, we we thank you that you have brought us near to yourself. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.